Open your Bibles to James, the second chapter. We have finally finished chapter 1 in our series in James, Faith That Works. And so today we come to chapter 2. The epistle is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, who did not believe that his half-brother was the Messiah until after the resurrection. But when he saw his resurrected half-brother, he knew that Jesus indeed is Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah. And James wrote the epistle to Jewish believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire, primarily scattered because of persecution. Last week we closed out chapter 1 by looking at the last two verses, verses 26 and 27, the person with a faith that is real. And today, as we begin the second chapter, we want to talk about the unchristlikeness of favoritism. The unchristlikeness of favoritism. So I'm going to ask you to stand again in honor of the reading of God's Word, James chapter 2, the first 13 verses, and here is what the brother of Jesus wrote, the pastor of the First Baptist Church, or excuse me, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And you may be seated. There are 59 imperatives in the 108 verses of the epistle of James. Verse 1 of the second chapter has an imperative with an example that likely is not a theoretical example. It is likely one that had actually occurred in the early church and is now addressed pointedly by James. 
So as we progress through these verses this morning, I want you to think on two levels. All of us can do this. Think on two levels. Think, first of all, about yourself personally. And second, think about our church corporately. Yourself personally and our church corporately. So the unchristlikeness of favoritism. Favoritism, discrimination, prejudice, any one of those three words could be used in the text and can be used in the, in the title. When I pastored my first church 40 years ago, I cannot believe it's been 40 years ago when I pastored my first church. For some reason, the Holy Spirit led me to, in my first year, to preach through the book of James. And I was as perplexed then as I am now as to why God is having me go through James. Because James is so direct, so blunt, steps all over my toes. And so I can't help but bring it to you on on, on Sunday. Hope that's okay. Wear your old shoes. Don't wear your new ones. And so as I preached through that, I was cognizant of, of the fact that I thought there were some things in the church that needed to be addressed in regard to the second chapter of Acts. And so I remember in this passage preaching on prejudice and discrimination and favoritism. And I think in the sermon I said something like this, looking out over my audience and seeing that we were 100% white I said to the church, as your pastor, I will be out visiting in the community. I hope you'll join me. And as I knock on doors, it does not matter to me the color of the person who opens the door. I will be inviting him or her to join us here at First Baptist, regardless of what they look like. And I hope that you will join me in that invitation. It was something like that. I may have elaborated a little more, but that's basically what I said. The next morning, we lived across the street from the church. That's fine. Um, the next morning, as I walked across the street to go to my office at 8 o'clock, there were two men Deacons, two deacons. They were not representing the deacons, but they were deacons. And they were there standing on the sidewalk waiting for me. I'm clueless as to why they would be there that early in the morning. And I greeted them warmly, and they did not greet me warmly. They greeted me, but it was not warm. And so I thought, well, I'm clueless still. I'm naive. I'm young. I'm not, I think, well, wonder why they're not very friendly this morning. And so they said, we want to talk to you. Come on into my office and I, I unlock the door and turn on the lights. I said, sit down, gentlemen. They said, we don't need to sit down. So then I knew they were unhappy. And so I had to endure for the next few minutes a tirade on their part. And one of the deacons, I mean, why does it always have to be this way? I'm pretty tall, but he made me look like a pygmy. And he was towering above me and just, I mean, it was not pretty. And I'm not going to repeat what he said, but he made it clear that he and his companion, who never said a word, 
that he and his companion did not like what I had said the day before. And with expletives in his language, he said, that will never happen at this church. That's when you begin to question your call. Now, I know it was 40 years ago, but I honestly thought we had gotten beyond that. But I discovered, at least there, we had not. And I will just tell you that it was an extraordinarily interesting time as pastor. I did not back down, lest you wonder if I turned into a wimp. I told him that we would too, that I would do exactly what I said I would do, and that if people who don't look like us come, they will be welcome in this place. Well, I knew as I said that, they'd have been welcomed by me and the majority, but not necessarily by everybody, and certainly not the two men standing in front of me. Well, as we think about the unchrist likeness of favoritism this morning, I want to say a few things about it from the text. So here is the first thing. It is unacceptable discrimination. Now, the word discrimination can be a good word or a bad, a bad word. It can be a good word when you're discriminating between truth and falsehood. That, that's a good use of the term. It's a bad word when it's used in terms of prejudice or favoritism. It is unacceptable, James tells us. Faith and favoritism do not go together. It is an inconsistent behavior for a Christ follower. Favoritism, prejudice, discrimination can be on the basis of financial standing, which is the example that James gave us. It can be racial. It can be on the basis of skin color or nationality. It can be on the basis uh, of academics, as you may have discovered through the years. But the illustration that James uses in our setting may shock us that in the early church, such a thing could have ever taken place. But I believe it did, and I believe that's why James uses this story And James drives home the point that the rich man and the poor man are of equal worth in God's eyes, that Jesus died for both of them, that God created both of them in His image, and they are to be treated the same. And when we make comparisons and treat one with favoritism, we are being acting in an unacceptable manner. And it's the same with any comparison, racial comparison, skin color, nationality, economic background, academic accomplishment, whatever it it may be, everyone is on level ground at the foot of the cross. James is not condemning wealth in this passage. The rich man needs Jesus too, but he is pointedly warning us about treating one another differently on the basis of the external things. And he punches it hard in the latter part of verse 4 when he says, you have become judges with evil thoughts. It is evil, James says, to think and act and talk in this manner. It cannot be justified. 
So we ask ourselves the question this morning, do we consciously or unconsciously show favoritism on the basis of social status or on the basis of the color of a person's skin or on the basis of how smart we think somebody may be? And since you and I are the church, if we are prejudice, then it is a stain on the church and we need to stop it. And so James is talking about the unchrist likeness of favoritism. The second thing that he says very clearly from this text, it is contrary to God's sovereignty. Look at verse 5. It is contrary to God's sovereignty. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? To look upon others and show favoritism or discrimination or prejudice is contrary to God's sovereignty. Now, you and I cannot stand up against God's sovereignty. God will do what God's going to do. But when we stand against God's sovereignty, it is expressing a disbelief on our part in his sovereignty. And so James is reminding the mostly poor early believers, God in his sovereignty has chosen you and your brothers and sisters and called you out from among the poor to be in his family to be part of the family of God so why would you show favoritism it defies his will and historically the church has been poor that is the history of the church now you may look at the cathedrals in Europe and say, I don't know about that pastor. Well, look into the background of the building of those cathedrals and you will find that there was the hierarchy and Rome who were rich, but the average man in the pew was as poor as Job's turkey, which is a Georgia term that I grew up with. I'm not sure that translates here. But historically, the church has been poor. Now, we look around in our context, and we're, we're well off. We're very well off. So it presents, if we're not careful, an opportunity to forget where we've come from, and thus to discriminate against the poor or others who are, quote, not like us, unquote. God has chosen us, it says in the text, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. We dare not discriminate. So we translate that into where we live. And so reflect upon your neighborhood. Reflect upon your workplace or your school context. Reflect upon the places that you go. And ask yourself the question, am I prejudiced or discriminating or am I showing favoritism? If the answer to that is yes, then stop it. Stop it. And when that neighbor moves in, we invite him or her or them to church. 
and we're not even thinking about what they look like. We are simply saying, here's a new family in the neighborhood. Let's invite them to church. They may come. They may not come. But we are not going to refuse to ask them on the basis of the way that they look or any other thing that is external about them. I know this is a very minor thing in the big picture of favoritism and prejudice and discrimination. But I use it as an illustration because I've done it a bunch of times. In Sunday school, you'll be there momentarily. What do we do when we walk into our Sunday school department? Now, I know not all of you do this, but what do a lot of us do? We walk into our Sunday school department. We scan the room for our good friend, and we make a beeline to him or her to catch up on what's happened during the week. Nothing wrong with that, except if in the making of a beeline to our friend, we pass by the new individual or the new couple who are there as our guests. They've not come before, and we just ignore them and go right to our familiar setting then are we not showing favoritism or discrimination? Now, that's a minor thing, not hopefully not based on skin color or anything else like that. But can we not be in tune and sensitive when we walk in and look about and there's the new person, there's the person I don't know. I'll get to you in a few minutes, my 20-year friend, but I'm going to speak to this person first and welcome them and particularly taking that extra step if they do happen to be someone that doesn't look like me. And so James says it is contrary to God's sovereignty. The unchristlikeness of favoritism, thirdly, it is illogical in the face of reality. It is illogical in the face of reality. James says, why are you showing favoritism to the rich? Aren't they the ones who defame Christ and drag you into court? It doesn't make any sense what you're doing it is illogical and so james says why are you doing this now i don't know that we've ever had a guest in our church who wanted to drag us into court i, I may be wrong about that i don't know that i can identify with this illustration, but I, as I prayed over this text this week, I, I thought about uh, what we see so prominently today among the Hollywood elite, among those who choose to be so critical of Christianity and the church. And that's not everybody. There are believers in Hollywood, and I admire those who stand for Christ like crazy. But those who choose to, and it's not a secret, we know who they are. They identify, they publicly criticize Christ in the church. But we still show up at the box office and we pay them to see something they did. Why do we do that? There's plenty of things to see without supporting the one who is 
critical of our faith and critical of our Savior. James says it's illogical. doesn't make sense. It's illogical because it will, it will kill your testimony when you discriminate, when you're a prejudice, when you show favoritism. You know, it, it took in the, in our, in that first church, it, it took a little while. I'm not the sharpest pencil on, on the desk. I've said that many times, but it, but it took me a while to figure out why, why do we keep inviting people who don't look like us to come to church and they keep saying, Oh no, Oh no, we, we can't come there. Why is that? They knew. It's not a secret. They knew. They knew there were many people in the church who did not want them there. And so they chose not to come. I remember that our children were little. We live right across the street from the church, so we're in the neighborhood. So my wife would take our two little ones out most afternoons for a walk or go to the park and play. And the neighborhood kids would all see her and they'd come out. This started in the summer. We moved there in the summer. So this started, they'd come out and they'd start, they'd want to see the babies and they wanted to play. And, and so there came this day when my wife had a great idea, she thought, and that was to invite the neighborhood kids to come to our church gym and to skate we had a skating rink in there come to our come skate i'll i'll supervise so they did (laughs) they showed up Um, and they came many times then we went to the next business conference of the church only to have a lady raise her hand and say Why are you letting them come and skate and they wear the same skates our children wear? I was horrified. I mean, I couldn't believe I just heard what I heard. And she was a little older lady and what I wanted to say was, well, just be sure you don't put any of them on that if you feel that way. And then we, we let a local black church use our fellowship hall for a banquet. Next business meeting, why, why did you let them use our fellowship hall? They used our forks and knives. Now, this, that was the 20th century. I'm not talking about civil war period. I'm talking about the 20th century. So it is no wonder. That when I would say to a black couple, come to our church, we'd love to have you. And they would say, oh, thank you, Pastor, but we're not coming. Oh, it didn't take me too terribly long to figure out why they didn't want to come. James says it's illogical. I've never understood why we would give thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to missions to send missionaries to Africa to tell people about Jesus so they can be with us in heaven but we don't want to go to church with them here that is illogical and so James addresses it that way now 
The unchristlikeness of favoritism number four is pointedly, it is sin, verses 8 through 11. It is sin. Just like James to hit the issue head on, it is sin. If we sin in one part, we break the law of God. So nobody can be self-righteous and say, well, I do, I do, well, yeah, I break the law here and there, but no. We do one thing, we break the whole law. That's why we need Jesus. That's why you can't save yourself. We need Jesus. And, and, and so, is there a need on the part of anybody in the room today to confess and repent? And then do we need to reassert our commitment to reaching out to everybody? Everybody. We cannot excuse prejudice by saying, well, that's just the way I was raised. It's sin, pure and simple. It, it is. It's sin, pure and simple. Now, that brings us, thankfully, to the last thing in regard to the unchristlikeness of favoritism. James says it invites God's judgment, verses 12 and 13. It invites God's judgment. If you judge others on the superficial, you too will be judged. Now, last week when we were looking at verses 26 and and 27, and, and James says, if you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue, you deceive yourselves, your religion is worthless or your religion is not real. Now, we're not talking about the person who occasionally lets slip the, the, the four-letter word or occasionally has a, something, gossips about somebody. We're talking about an established lifestyle, a person who claims to be a believer, but a lifestyle of an inability to control his or her tongue. James says, your religion is not real. It is it is worthless. In other words, there's no other way around what he said, but that you're not really a Christian. You are not a Christian. How, what other way would you interpret your religion being worthless or not real? Now, is he saying the same thing here when he says we invite judgment on ourselves if we show favoritism? And again, I don't think he's thinking about the, the occasional rare slip where we may think something we shouldn't think or say something we shouldn't say, but he's talking about that established lifestyle of one that is shows favoritism, prejudice, or discrimination. Is he saying in the text, if you behave that way, you cannot possibly be saved? I will simply let the text speak for itself and say I'm not sure how you could interpret it any other way. So we need to examine our hearts and know we cannot discriminate. All people need Jesus and sharing Jesus globally starts right here and goes to the ends of the earth. So I close with this. Look at your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal prejudice, if there is any, and repent. 
Secondly, do whatever needs to be done to reach all people with the gospel. No matter what they look like, what their background, all that we can do to reach people with the gospel. And thirdly, seek justice and exercise mercy. And then lastly, the understanding, if I do my part and you do your part, then the church will be doing its part because we are the church. Remember, the church is not a location, it's not a building, it's not pews, it's not a steeple, it's not an organ, a piano, it's not the rugs that we have our feet on at the moment. The church is people, and that's us. And so our reputation becomes the church's reputation because we are the church. Let's bow together for prayer. In the quietness of the moment, we just let the Holy Spirit speak to us. And whatever He is saying, be obedient. If there is the stain of favoritism, prejudice, discrimination in your heart and in your life today, then repent and make it right and stop your current practice and begin to do what God wants you to do. If there is no stain of discrimination in your life, then praise God and pray in this moment that God will set someone free from that stain today. And then... If there's one, two, three, a dozen, or however many in this room who do not yet know Jesus, the Holy Spirit may very well at this moment be tugging at your heart. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Will you come and place your hand in mine this morning and say very simply, Pastor, I need Jesus. A member of our staff will be here to pray with you. That today you might receive forgiveness for your sins, the gift of eternal life, the presence of the Lord Jesus in your heart and your life from this day forward. Will you come? And so, Father, I pray that we will be the men and women of God that you want us to be, that we will be the men and women of God who are free from the, from prejudice over things that are external. And Father, that we will be determined to reach all people all over the world, beginning right here in our own community. And then I pray, Father, that someone in this place might come to know Jesus today. In the Savior's name I pray. Amen. God speaks to your heart. You come as we stand and sing.